Good morning, everyone. I'm excited to continue in uh, the book of Ephesians today. And uh, if you grew up like I did in the Dutch Reformed Church, how many of you? Is that true? Okay. Well, if you did, you would have gone through the Heidelberg Catechism. And maybe uh, God was gracious enough that you could also experience that. But the, the Heidelberg Catechism starts like this. Um, question and answer number one is my favorite. It's this, what is your only comfort in life and death? Does anyone know the answer? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. I love it because I think it's like one of the clearest summaries of the good news that we call the gospel. And in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, we probably have the best and clearest summary in the New Testament of what this good news is. I mean, it's like you, you find it on every page. You find the good news displayed in Galatians and in Philippians and in First and Second Corinthians. You find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. You see that Jesus came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many in Mark chapter 10. And you, you see all of these passages throughout that describe what Jesus has done. Or in Corinthians, where Paul says, we preached to you what was of first importance, that you know, Jesus died and raised again. But I think here in these first 10 verses of Ephesians, we really get this like full-hearted picture of what the good news is. So I'm really thrilled. Um, I'm really thrilled to get to preach it this morning. It's much simpler than the idea of uh, helping out by taking a passage in Revelation. So, let me dive in this morning. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever seen these um, virtual reality goggles or tried them on. They're kind of, they're kind of amazing, right? You, you put them on and it transports you to any, anywhere, really. The one, the one that I tried uh, my, my brother had it at his house, and my brothers and my dad and I were all trying it out. You, you put it on your head, and um, it, you, it's like you're in an elevator. And you can see, like, the elevator is, is going up. You can see the numbers rising. And then the elevator doors open, and there's, like, a plank that walks out of the sky, uh, skyscraper above the city, and you can see the street below. And it... it it's really crazy. So how my brother does it is he puts a, a, a little two-by-four on the ground so that as you, like, step towards, you, you like, feel it. You can feel it wobble a little bit. <laughs> like, you're only two inches off the ground. But it's really freaky. And it, it's, it's, like, it's like in your head, you're like, I know. I'm just in my brother's living room. Why am I, like, my armpit's so sweaty right now? You know, like, as I'm, as I'm walking out shaky on this thing. My dad goes out on it. And he, like, takes a step, and then he's, he's so, like, freaked out. He loses his balance, and he falls down on the ground, just like I thought. It's, it was amazing. Um, but these, these, these virtual reality goggles in this scenario, they, cre- they, they create this idea that, like, 
you're in more danger than you actually are. You know, they make you feel like you're in way more danger than you actually are. I think that, that Satan's primary tactic for the Christian, for the human, is actually to do the opposite. It's actually to say that you're in far less danger than you actually are. So we, how does he do that? He downplays the consequences of sin. Chapter 2, verses 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Transgressions, another way to say it. You know, these first, first chapter, Jeremy said, and he pointed out rightly, that all of, these, all of the verbs used in these first a few chapters of, of Ephesians are like about God acting upon us. We are, we are passive recipients of what he has done for us in salvation. So we see uh, what has, chapter 1 is all about what God has done and not anything about what we, has done, so what we have done. And we find this like, okay, God has blessed us in Christ. He has chosen us in Christ. He has predestined us for adoption through Christ. He has redeemed us through Christ's blood. He's given us hope for salvation in Christ. He assures us of that salvation. He marks us as saved so that we can have that assurance in Christ. He gives us hope in Christ. But, Paul says in chapter 2, we have not always been in Christ. In fact, prior to being in Christ, prior to being united with him, we were in something else. What is it that we were in? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's like, we are nice and dry and comfortable in here. But if we would have been outside yesterday, we would not be nice. We were outside of the comfort and safety of this chapel. This is what Paul describes the difference between being in Christ and in our sins. One is safe. One is full of life. One is full of hope. One is full of blessing. The other is being in sin. And he describes what that looks like in the, in the following verses. Verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, in these first three verses, Paul says you're dead in your transgressions and your sins, but he says you were also still alive while this was happening. And so he paints this picture for us of like zombie-like state of going through the world where we are living, following our flesh, following the world, following the ruler of the air. But we're not really alive. We're not really alive. Spiritually speaking, we're dead. Last week, Vasha compelled us to think about whether or not we're following Christ or just following like a future version of ourselves. You know, like, is our, are our lives shaped right now more by Christ than what we hope the future version of ourself will be. That's convicting. I think, uh, I think it was a really helpful thought experiment to, to determine, like, are we following Christ or are we just following 
ourselves. And part of what we want our future self to be is to have some spiritual aspect, and so we include Christ in that journey. And then in chapter 2, we get to this, we get to this passage, and it's like, yeah, before Christ, you were following yourself. Look at what it says. Look at what it says. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, our flesh, our body, our mind. Everything about who we are was following ourselves. The result of which was that we were deserving of God's wrath. We were dead in our transgressions and our sins. I was on a plane ride not too long ago, and the man sitting next to me asked me what I did, and that led to the spiritual conversation we were having. And we got to talking just about, like, worldview, and he asked if I thought, you know, one of the parts of what Christianity he struggled with was this doctrine that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He really, he really thought that humanity was innately good. And he asked me if I thought that humans were naturally good or evil. And I said, I believe they're evil. He's like, well, what about, what about like little kids? You believe little kids are evil? It's like, I can see it with adults, but what about little kids? I was like, have you met little kids? Yeah, I was like. Uh, but the Bible makes it pretty clear that humans are not innately good since the fall. We're born in sin. And this seems true in experience. You know, we laugh about that joke, but it also seems true in experience because what do parents spend the majority of their time doing? Teaching kids to be good, you know? How much, of, how much of a parent's life do you spend teaching your kids to be evil? And yet, and yet, like, we don't have to teach. We don't have to teach our girls to be selfish or to be greedy. It's like, how do they figure that out all by themselves, you know? So this, this weekend, I played memory, a memory game. You know, you flip up the cards, you've got to find the matches with Kenzie. And she's, like, peeking, taking extra turns, you know? I'm like, Kenzie, that's cheating. You shouldn't do that. She's like, okay. <laughs> but it's like, how much time did Amanda spend this week teaching Kenzie to lie and cheat during homeschool? None. You know, none. Honey, none. She's teaching Sunday school. None. We don't have to teach kids to be evil. Our human nature is to be rotten. Rotten enough that it is deserving of God's wrath. We, by nature, were children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God. Verse 4. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even as we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved but God there's a corny pastor joke that I will now share with you uh, it's it's like what is the biggest but in the Bible this one is the answer okay it's but God you know we were dead in our sins, transgressions and senses I tell this to the girls I test out my material with the girls we're driving the car what's the biggest but in the Bible Abby goes probably Goliath you know it's like it's like yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, that's a good little kid. But it says, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And to be clear, this is like, this, this but God happens before you clean yourself up. Before you got your act together. You know, before you changed your habits. 
before you were worthy of a second chance. But God, being rich in mercy, of course he must be. To be able to say, but God, he must be rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he must love us. Or there would be no but God. Made us alive together with Christ. You know, it's pretty interesting in the Bible. It's like, we know as, as Protestants, we believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we say that and we repeat it. But I think it can be like something we don't necessarily always internalize, that we are saved by grace alone. I say that, because, and I think that's been true, not just in like Western Christianity, but throughout history, that grace is offensive, particularly when it's applied to other people. So like you, you read the Bible and you see these parts of the scriptures where there's amazing display of grace, where people are given a gift that they don't deserve. So look at Jonah. He's so mad that the Ninevites receive grace. Or when Jesus tells the parable of the, the, you know, the workers at the 11th hour, they, like, these workers start work right away, then some other workers, then these workers, they only work like one hour. And the master comes back, and he's like, it's time for you to be paid your wages, and he pays them all the same. And the workers who were there in the beginning, they get so mad. Why do they get mad? Well, these people came at the last minute. Why do they get, why do they get paid? And Jesus says, the master says, why are you envious of my generosity? It's my money. I can do with it what I want. Grace is offensive. Like the, women, the woman caught in adultery, the woman who comes with a, with a perfume and wipes it on Jesus' feet, and the Pharisees are offended that Christ would forgive their sins and apply this grace to them, the prodigal son. You know, it's like everywhere in the scriptures, grace upon grace. Grace is amazing for me, but it's harder to swallow for thee. A danger for Christians is to think this way, to think selfishly about grace. But when we think this way, when we think like, I deserve grace, we've created like an oxymoron. Doesn't make sense. No one deserves grace. Grace is, by definition, undeserved. So you don't deserve grace. Neither does this sinner down the street, your neighbor, who's too loud at night. My neighbors are here, so they're probably being like, Justin. <laughs> I don't deserve grace either, do you? It's not just grace that makes us alive in Christ, but God continues to show his grace to us in this, verse 6. Verse 6, and, and God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the glory of the resurrection. This is the defeat of death. This is why Easter is such a celebration. It's because of verse 6. Because God makes us alive and raises us up with Christ. When Jesus comes out of the grave, it's like, wow, that's amazing. That's so cool. We also come out of the grave because we're united with him. When he goes to the cross, we also go to the cross and our sins are taken care of. This is important. Because we, we, see, we see in this section, this second half, a really a contrast between what happens in these verses at the latter half and what happens in the first verses. In the first verses, 
We're dead in our trespasses and sins. In these verses, we're alive in Christ. In the first verses, we're following the prince of the power of the air. In these verses, verse 6, we're sitting in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We have a new ruler. We're part of a new kingdom. This is important. In most world religions, it is our good actions that lead to salvation, not in Christianity. In Christianity, it is our salvation that leads to good actions. This flips moralism on its head. It's like who you were, dead in transgressions and sins. Who you are, made alive in Christ. The difference is at Calvary. Calvary is the difference. In the center of this is Jesus, but God raises us to new life. And that life, like him performing that act of salvation, has a purpose. What is it? Verse 7. Paul continues his argument. He says, so that, this is why he does it, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. When Amanda and I were down in Chicago, I was in seminary. She got a job, and her job led to us dog-sitting for this wealthy couple that lived nearby. They had this, like, amazing mansion, this perfectly manicured grass. I mean, the grass was more expensive than our apartment, okay? This was nice grass. I, I can feel it right now under my feet. It's like, ah, oh, Okay. But we have this amazing house, and we're staying there to watch the dog. And we have our friends over for dinner one night, and they come, and none of our friends are like, wow, you guys have a really nice house, you know? Because they know. They know that's not, our, that's not our house. We look around. It's like, this is the mansion. It's like, oh, this, there's the wine cellar, you know. There's, there's the, 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 the grass. You guys should come feel the grass. And they're like, this, they, none of them were fooled into believing it was because of, you know, how rich I was. And I look around too, and I'm like, yeah, I can't believe it either. You know? I can't believe it either. Your life, if you're a Christian, is not about how good you are. In fact, when you share your testimony with other people, when you share how the Lord has saved you, it should be like this. You look around at all the things that are mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1, that you were chosen, that you were adopted, that you experience every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms, that you have hope, that grace and mercy is lavished upon you. And you don't think, like, you don't try to fool yourselves into believing it's something that you've done. You say, I can't believe it either. I can't believe it either. That's how scandalous this grace is, that we would be shocked at how good God is to us. And God, His purpose in saving us is to show us how rich His grace is, like how much grace He has, how much kindness He can express to us in Christ. When we chase after shallow things in this world, which is all what verses 1 through 3 is saying, Chasing after the wrong things. Chasing after the things we think will be enough for us. And what does God give us? We should get wrath, verse 3. But God, we get life, verse 4. And this is shocking grace that should say, like, man, the Lord has been richly kind to us. This is important because the Bible does not describe, like, the kindest thing that God can do to you in terms of your finances or your job or your fame or your friends or your family that you would get the great great spouse 
that you would have a nice future, that you would get to live a long life and retire and play a lot of golf. It's like, no, the kindest thing that God does for you, he shows the measurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The kindest thing that God does for us is to give us Christ. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, Jeremy pointed out in the first couple weeks of Ephesians, like you can't read more than one verse before you run into another um, another description of God doing something on our behalf. We're on the receiving side. And of course, this makes sense when you read chapter 2. It's like, if I, if I really am dead, if this is really true, if I was dead in my sins and transgressions, then the only way that I get saved is this way. The only way that I get saved is if God acts. Not my own. It's like, what, what do our actions bring us? We're, we're uh, walking in sins and trespasses. He, the, the author Paul uses both of these uh, both of these words to symbol, like to, to show his readers, he's talking about all of the things that we've done wrong, communally, individually, things that are very heinous and things that maybe we don't even realize are sins against God. Sins, and we walk in these things. We follow the prince of the power of the air. We're following God's enemy. We gratify our flesh. These are the things that we do, as described in Ephesians. So how will people like that be saved? It has to be because of God. It has to be initiated by God. And it has to be finished by God. If this is true, then it must be by grace. And if that is true, then there's no room for boasting. Listen to me, my friends. There's no room for condescension in the Christian life. There's no room for condescension in the Christian life. Not for any of us. Not even for Paul Burr. He's amazing. But he, too, saved by grace. We tend to elevate and denigrate people. And a lot of times it's based on, like, do they do things that we like or do things that we dislike? This passage, like, levels the playing field. It says, your hero in this world has to be saved by grace. They don't deserve it. Your enemy in this world has to be saved by grace. They don't deserve it. You in this world have to be saved by grace because you don't deserve it. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We were reminded of last week. The problem is no one's healthy. But it's far too easy to convince ourselves because some sins feel more visible than others. And then we act like the like the cancer patient who has stage four cancer, but is far more quick to say like, oh, that broken leg, that's, that's really gross. You should get that checked out. Satan's primary work is to make us believe we're in less danger than we are. This gift of salvation, this gift of grace is indeed a gift it doesn't originate from us you know and it's it's not even like oh i'm smart enough that i figured out that christianity was true that i need grace i'm humble enough that i went to the cross 
for help. Even that work is by God. It has to be grace that we are saved. It's also grace, high school guys, me on Wednesday nights, I know you're studying, you're going through TULIP to end the year. Okay, when you get to P, you're going to thank me for this, all right? Are you ready? It is not only by grace that we are saved, it is grace that God continues to save us and that we remain saved. Because we can, we can also fool ourselves into... Let me say it this way. I think that there's three lies that we can believe as it relates to this gospel of grace. The first is one that we actually believe before we become Christians. And it's that we don't need Jesus. You know, for, for someone who says they need Jesus, like, they're in, a, they're in a great place to be saved. It's like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay? These are people who understand that they need Jesus. But all of us, prior to being saved, believe the lie that we didn't actually need him. But grace doesn't just save us, it continues to save us. We know this because, like, you were chosen before you had done any good thing to deserve being chosen. And then you were adopted into his family after you had done everything bad. And God brings you into his family despite those two truths. Do you think now he'll remove you because you've done something bad? Or do you think he will continue to save you by his grace when you confess he's gracious to forgive us? But the first, one is, the, the first of these lies is that we didn't need Jesus at all. And this is a pretty like common belief in our world today. Those of us who have friends that don't know Jesus, and all of us before we knew Christ. Now there's like this, uh, I'll call it the, the white sneaker religion. I came up with this because I just got new white sneakers. But it's like we were born innately good, clean, white. And then it's all these outside things that scuff us up, that make us dirty, that tear us. In fact, if we could just get rid of all of those things, we would be back to our, 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 our wonderful white sneaker status but it goes like this it's like it's not talked about that way it's talked about no or i need to find my inner self my true self because i've been broken by trauma you know i've had negative influences i've had toxic people in my life and these are the these are the reasons these are the reasons that i sometimes act in a certain way that's not good but if I, can, if I can get through all those things, if I can heal back to my original state of being, then I'll be good. None of your friends will come to Christ apart from an understanding that they need Christ. They will never know him if they never need him. And they need him. But it's impossible for us to share the gospel with our friends and our family members and our loved ones without talking about this. This is the first lie that we can believe. The second lie is actually similar. And it, it's that our friends don't need Jesus. Uh, I, was, I, I really started um, walk with the Lord in college. Okay? And uh, 
what happened, it was like my junior year of college. I, I ended up having two somewhat separated friend groups of like my Christian friends that I met with that were part of Campus Crusade and, you know, the Bible study together. And my other friends with that I had made the first two years of college. Um, and, and it was good. I was like, I had this, these people I could share my faith with that were my friends that trusted me and I trusted them. We had a relationship. Um, but I had this friend named Charlie. And I, uh, he lived in our hall, and he was one of our close friends, uh, roommates at, at the house of all my closest friends. And I never shared the gospel with Charlie. Uh, a couple years after college, I was down in seminary, and I get a text from my friend, Charlie's missing. Charlie's missing. He went out, uh, he went out drinking, and the weather was cold, and he's missing. And then shortly after, another text, they found him. He passed away. And it's like, and it's like I never, um, I never shared the gospel with Charlie because maybe I didn't truly believe that he needed Jesus. You know? This is a lie we can believe that, that, yeah, okay, I believe that this is true, that I was dead in my sins and transgressions, that I was by nature deserving of wrath, but do my, but is that true of my friends? who don't know him? And if it is, do you want them to be made alive in Christ? And I think, like, I'm so convicted. Do I just say that my friends need Jesus, or do I actually believe it? So in the summer of 2020, I uh, got COVID, and right before I got COVID, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease. So, my favorite joke is that I had Corona with Lyme that summer, okay? That's pretty good. Um, but Lyme disease is a funny thing, where it's like, uh, there's like this one really obvious symptom that tells you like, hey, you should, you should go get checked for Lyme disease. And I was blissfully unaware of this symptom. And so one night, I was like, I was like, hey, babe, do you think, like, when you go to the store, can you get me some wart remover cream? I had this, like, thing on my arm. And she's like, okay, let me see it. And then she looks at it, and she's like, you fool. You know, you have Lyme disease, I think. And I was like, what are you talking about? I got Lyme disease. And uh, she didn't actually. But she's like, you, you know, that's like really obvious. Like you have this thing called a double bullseye, which is really like you think like Target lab- like marked you. Okay? It's like the red circle, then your skin, normal. And so I get a doctor's appointment. And the doctor's like, yeah, you have Lyme disease. And I was like, this really obvious symptom. You know, when she said it, the first thing I did was not call a doctor. The first thing I did was Google it to make sure she wasn't making it up. And it's like, yeah, all the pictures on Google look exactly like my arm. Okay, <laughs> you know. Um, there's a really obvious symptom if we believe this passage is true, and it's evangelism. It's a really obvious symptom. It's like, do you believe Ephesians 2 is true? then you'll want to share with your friends so that they also, people who are dead in their sins and transgressions, would be made alive in Christ, would experience his goodness. Um, our church has been growing. It's really encouraging. It's, it's super encouraging. Come to church. There's all these new faces. Um, except when I don't get the donut I want. 
It's not related, but my, the chocolate-covered one that's not filled. <laughs> Last week, it was Vashik's little four-year-old that took the donut, Anna. You know, she doesn't even speak English, so I can't tell her, you know, that she's doing something horrible. Born into sin. See? I didn't think. But it's encouraging. It's really encouraging. Like, our church is growing, and a lot of the people that are coming to our church are these mature believers. It's like, ah, it's so awesome. At the same time, it's like, we want our church to be filled with people who don't know Christ. Our friends and coworkers who don't yet know him. Why? Because we actually believe this is true. And you know what would be worse than them rejecting us as we shared with it? Us being ashamed to share it at all. There's a third lie uh, that can sneak in the back door of our hearts after we're converted as it relates to this gospel of grace. This third lie will come in the back door, often quietly and unnoticed. You just sit in the corner for a while. It won't cause a lot of disruption. But eventually it will like start to feel at home. Start to spread out its things. Start to demand that you fill the fridge with its favorite food. And the lie is this, that we don't still need Jesus. We don't still need Jesus. It's the same line in a different form. It says, he saved me. I believe, but God saved me. And now I'm good. I believe the gospel, and now I go on living life as I want to. I've been saved. D.L. Moody had an awesome quote like this. He says, it's like, Jeremy's nodding because I'm quoting Moody. Uh, he's got this quote, it's like, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough today to last him for the next six months. Nor can he inhale sufficient air into his lungs with one breath to sustain life for a week to come. We are permitted to draw upon God's store of grace from day to day as we need it. And when people don't come back to this gospel, to draw from this gospel, this good news of grace, over and over again, they shrivel up like a tree that deprived of the sun. And what that looks like in the life of a believer is they start to justify sin. They have to. Where else will they find the grace to take care of it? They start to diminish their sin. It's not that bad. It's not as bad as my neighbor Steve. Look at Steve's sin. It's way worse. They have to try to make their sin so small that they can deal with it on their own. And, and I'll say this, uh, I want to say this next part gently and cautiously. But it's like, so before COVID, the average attendance for uh, a churchgoer in the United States was somewhere between one and two weeks of the month. You know, so like one and a half times a month. And after COVID, it's significantly less. And there are good reasons, right, to be cautious, to be, to be careful. Um, a lot of our friends, like a lot of your friends, people you care about, were pulled away from church. It's like, why do we gather on Sundays? We don't gather on Sundays so that we would be saved. 
We gather on Sundays to remind ourselves that we need saving and to point ourselves to the one who can do the saving. So for all of our friends and loved ones who who are still separated from the body, I'm afraid that they'll be tempted to believe this lie, right? That they no longer need grace. And the reason they would believe this lie is because they're no longer reminded weekly, daily, that they need grace. An application of reading this passage would be to invite your friends to church. Or if they have a church they just like haven't gone to in two years, encourage them to go back. We need Jesus, and we need to be reminded weekly that we need Jesus. It's why at Gospel Life Church, we take communion every week. Why? Because we need to be reminded of the saving work of Jesus. We can't take one breath and hope it fills our lungs for a week. The second application for us as a church is that I think we need to continue to foster a culture of neediness foster a culture of neediness. We are not a people gathered who have it all figured out. We have a people gathered who praise a God who has it all figured out. And what does a culture of neediness look like in a church? It's a place where confession is safe. Why is confession safe? Confession is not safe where there is little grace. Confession is extraordinarily safe where there is a well of grace that will never run dry. So we need to point ourselves to that and believe that truth that God's grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. We need to create a culture of neediness. The final verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me read it again. For we are God's workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, I pointed out there's a before and an after. You follow the prince there, now you're in the heavenly realms. It's also like you were dead in your sins and transgressions, now you're alive in Christ. Verse 2, the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Verse 10, God prepared good works that we should walk in them. It's before and after. Ephesians 2.15. Uh, many of you know that um, uh, part, part of my job is putting on this, is, is helping to put on this conference for students every other summer. And uh, we got to hear about we got to hear about the culture of Japan because one of the things that the students will get to go through is experiencing the culture of Japan and developing a heart for those people to know Jesus, how does the gospel apply to some of the, some of the cultural things that they experience? And so he's, this uh, woman who's building this uh, thing, the walkthrough, this experience, she, she tells us about this art form. It's called Kintsugi art. And of course, like, I look it up. Zoom meetings, it's totally okay. You can be on Google while people are talking. I look it up immediately. And it's like, It's amazing. Okay, this is, it's this art form that was started by a Japanese man who broke his favorite tea bowl and he sent it to China to be fixed. It came back with like metal pins. And he's like, this is ugly and, it, and, it, and, it's, and it's not, it doesn't work right. And so he, he brought it to another shop and they took the pins out and it was these shards of the tea bowl. 
And in Kintsugi art, they mix lacquer with gold powder, and they use that to put the shards back together. The result is that it's more beautiful than it was when it was first shaped. Just thinking about this passage, you know, as I, as I read this. I was like, we're shattered by sin and transgression. And then we're put back together by something far more precious than the original material. We're redeemed by Christ's blood. And we're not just made to look more beautiful than we did before, but now we can fulfill our purpose, right? Now the bowl holds water again. For we are his workmanship, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus in good works, which he, God prepared before him that we should walk in them. What are these good works? Let me, uh, let me end with this. These are, good, these, these are good works. I think sometimes, you know, when we talk about good works in the Bible, we, we either split it into two categories, both of which are kind of insufficient to describe what good works means in the Scripture. It's like one would be good works, and, and maybe a more of the Jewish understanding would be this means like works of the law. And then Gentile understanding, which is like Paul's audience here, be uh, more of like good deeds that we do. So we think about this, we're, we're supposed to do good deeds, we read this passage. I think so, but it's like, but it's a little bit like, Jeremy is addicted to these land cruisers. FJ72 land cruiser, something like that. It's a type of car. If I were to describe to you what, like, the FJ92 land cruiser, or, yeah, I don't even know if that's what's called. Okay, you would get, like, such a, such a, like, anemic version of it. But if you ask Jeremy about this thing, he has a sermon prepared right now about it. You know, it's like, it'll be 45 minutes long about all the amazing features of the, of the 1992 Land Cruiser. That's probably not even the right year. I don't know. But I think sometimes, like in Christianity, we think about good works and we have this anemic view. It's just like, oh, these are the good things we do. Uh, Snowblow your neighbor's driveway. Pick up someone who needs a ride. Let me attempt to give you a little more full view of what good works are. And I'll end with this. What are these good works that God saves us for? Not saves us because of. Good works are not the grounds of our salvation. They're the goal of our salvation. Verse 7, the goal, God's glory. Verse 10, good works. The vision of Gospel Life Church Rooting all of life in this gospel. Why? For God's glory, verse 7, and good works, verse 10. What are these good works? They're a way that we give God glory. Listen. Good works are God's gifts cherished, God's mercy shared, God's comfort received, God's grace believed, God's holiness revered, God's kindness proclaimed, God's strength relied on. God's generosity passed on. God's forgiveness paid forward. God's people loved. God's mission accepted. God's gospel shared. God's rule obeyed. God's heart displayed. God's sovereignty 
trusted, God's word savored, God's creation stewarded, God's kingdom established, God's person enjoyed. How? How can this be? Because we are not our own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. But God, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this good news. I pray that as we hear it, it would result in your glory of your incomparable riches of kindness expressed to us in Christ Jesus. I pray it would result in your glory. And I pray that it would result in good works. The community of Crystal would know, would wonder, would ask about why these people are the way that they are, and we would say, I can't believe it either. But we know it's because of you and your son and his work on the cross and his defeat of death. And I pray this for our people. Would you move us to share this good news with others? Amen.